0: Hi, Connor Boyle here from Intelligence Squared. Today on the podcast, we're bringing you the latest episode of Season 4 of No Bullshit Leadership, hosted by Chris Hurst. On today's episode, Chris is joined by former Artistic Director of the National Theatre, Sir Nicholas Hinter. Here's Chris with more. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, politics, or as in today's case, the arts. I'm delighted to be joined this episode by the director, Sir Nicholas Heitner. He's currently the artistic director and founder of The Bridge Theatre, the first privately funded theatre to open in London for over 80 years. Previously, he was the artistic director of the National Theatre for 12 years, from 2003 to 2015. And he has multiple major successes as a director on screen and stage, including Miss Saigon, The History Boys, One Man Two Governors, and the BAFTA award-winning Madness of King George. It's quite a CV. Welcome to the podcast, Nicholas. It's very
1: good to be here. Thank you.
0: Let's start briefly, at least at the beginning. So tell me where you grew up
1: and was theatre always in your blood? Yeah, I grew up in Manchester and it, it was, I was taken to the theatre as a kid. I, I was enthusiastic from a very young age. Uh, there was a lot of theatre at my school. I was at Manchester Grammar School and I did theatre as an undergraduate. So it, it was very, very easy to discover it. I, I think that it, it, it's quite a contrasting background to many equivalent backgrounds today where theatre is quite hard to find because arts and humanities have been stripped out of the state school sector. And the worry, therefore, is that it's much, much more difficult to light upon an enthusiasm if the riches that are available are never are never made available to you at an early age.
0: Did you have, if you like, theatrical heroes as you were growing up? Whether famous or not? I mean, was there a particular teacher or somebody who you look at and go,
1: you know what, it was them or, or a group of people that really introduced you? There's always a teacher. There was, there was an English teacher who, who, who ran the drama. Drama was not an academic subject when, back in the 60s and 70s. It was something that you did extracurricular. There was a, a, an English teacher called Brian Fidian who was entirely inspirational and who took School trips to local theatres, theatres in Manchester, theatres outside Manchester, and also to Stratford. So my early professional theatrical heroes were were essentially the actors and directors at the Royal Shakespeare Company in the in the seventies. Peter Peter Brook, which you know any any theatre director of my generation will will almost inevitably cite Peter Brook and a specific production, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream, mid seventies Midsummer Night's Dream as the as the epiphany uh
0: and can you identify a point when you saw it as as something that you could do for a living let's say as opposed to something you do for fun
1: on the one hand it, it, i came from middle-class jewish family aspirational theatre was not something that was necessarily an advisable way to earn a living. On the other hand, I did have a cousin, a second cousin, who was an actor and an aunt who was a costume designer. There were at least, at least people who showed that it, that it wasn't completely lunatic to, to, to try to earn a living in the theatre. Of course, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. I learned early enough that I wasn't an actor, never to have a proper go at that professionally. I, I very rarely been paid for acting occasionally
0: but very rarely so cut to today you've you're a hugely successful producer director artistic director entrepreneur all of which we'll hopefully come and look at in a bit more detail but but it, a podcast about leadership and it strikes me that they all require leadership skills but also i wonder if quite different types of leadership skills and you've, you know, you've thrived at all. I mean, I, so, you know, my, my background, by contrast to yours, mine is essentially only being a business background, if you like. How would you describe the kind of leadership skills that you have to be, you have to have in a rehearsal room in taking a group of, I guess, often strangers, pulling these people together and turning by some alchemy (laughs) that into this extraordinary performance.
1: it, Maybe this isn't too helpful, but it differs play by play, movie by movie. I'm I'm much more practiced in a rehearsal room. And there are many different kinds of theater directors. There are theater directors who have a clear vision and they pull others along through the brilliance of the vision and the force of the personality behind them until they can fulfill the goal that they had in mind right at the start. There are playwrights like that. There are playwrights who know exactly what the ideal production of their play is going to look like, and therefore, and, and and often, they are a hundred percent right. But therefore, the finished product can only ever be a disappointment. There are directors who. You mean or, disappointment who, to them? I mean, yeah, yeah. But, they're, they're, that, that That's I've worked with one such playwright. So they must uh, be
0: tortured souls. Is that why
1: they're they're always miserable? They're, they're the, they're the exception. So most playwrights, it's I'm coming at this actually, through through initially, from a playwright's point of view, most playwrights will be delighted by what actors bring to the thing that was flat on the page. I think directors have to be similarly surprised. It's certainly the way I find it works best. The process is starts with the selection of the play. If it's a new play, it very often involves collaboration with the playwright the editing of the play a job equivalent to a literary editor to an editor at a publisher it will then move on to the visualization of the play with a designer all the time it seems to me that the most effective method is to encourage the collaborator to surprise you if you're the director to to acknowledge that if you're the director you likely Can't make a model, you can't draw, um, you act poorly, you can't compose music, and yet somehow you do also have to acknowledge that you are the creative center. You present often on the first day of rehearsal something which has, in certain aspects, been finished. This is what it's going to look like. The choice has been taken, say you're doing Julius Caesar, the choice has been taken not to invent an ancient world but to try and create a synthesis of the ancient world, the world Shakespeare was writing for, and our own world that we're performing to. These decisions have very often been taken, and then what you have to do if you're the director of the play is to allow yourself to be surprised yet again, constantly to be surprised. Sometimes the job involves straightforward teaching. Um, Again, if I take just randomly taking a Shakespeare as an example rather than a new play, there will be younger members of the company who do require a lot of just straightforward teaching, showing how to do it. Sometimes there's a right and a wrong, to, and I think that leadership sometimes does involve finding the best way to say, you're wrong about that. But acting, particularly numbers of actor, act, actors acting with each other, uh, it's not about discovering the right and the wrong, it's about discovering the, the common ground and agreeing collectively about as it were, the metaphorical space that that a story an event is going to mm. occupy, and as a director you're at the center of that
0: mm. I mean it seems to me that, that that listening to you being a good communicator must be an absolutely critical skill yes I mean,
1: being yeah. a good communicator, I think intuiting, intuiting the emotional temperature it, without without being pretentious it is it can be it can be it should be an emotionally raw process acting particularly in the rehearsal room a great performance is is very often not simply pulling on somebody else's clothes simply chameleon like transforming into somebody else it's always going to be a process of self-discovery so there are always going to be emotional hurdles to jump there's also very often technical hurdles to jump actors who want to achieve something who want say and i'm oversimplifying to cry but can't they either don't have the technical equipment or they don't have they aren't emotionally ready yet it's no good it's no good pushing an actor into a place where an actor is simply going to feel that they failed so um, being sensitive to what uh, to what an individual actor, to, never mind an actor, to what a designer, to what a lighting designer, to what anybody is capable of doing today. And, and I'm sure this is, a, I know this is a read across into uh, other kinds of business leadership. Yeah, that's that's very much part of the process. And what if Brutus is on song, but Cassius is having trouble? It's uh, it's waiting waiting for the moment when they can meet on the same ground. I often, when I'm um, talking to younger directors, talk about a movie I made of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, in which Daniel Day-Lewis and the great English actor Paul Scofield had several scenes together. And they could not have been more different because Daniel Day-Lewis is, again, to oversimplify, a method actor. He has to become the character that he's playing. What that means is that prior to the day you shoot a scene on the set, he is disturbed by rehearsal because rehearsal is a kind of incontrovertible proof that the job is artificial. Once you start repeating somebody else's lines over and over and over, you are face-to-face with the essential aspect of the job, which is that you're saying somebody else's words in a way that has to be considered and honed and you have to stand on the right spot because otherwise the shot will be out of focus and you have to make sure you don't overlap with the other actor or you won't be able to cut it together. Schofield, who Daniel Day-Lewis came onto the film worshipping because Schofield appeared to harbour an extraordinary mystery to the way he acted, acted initially entirely technically. He, he, he looked for the sound of the line. He rehearsed the vowel sounds. They couldn't have come from more different places, and they were rather bewildered by each other. The point was that preparing in different ways, they arrived at exactly the same place on the day the cameras rolled. So again, you know, you're just you're just you're always dealing with with people who do a job which it's very difficult to describe acting. In different ways, and you just need to know—you just need to know or discover where they're arriving on the night.
0: I mean, that that is it's fascinating listening to you. So, 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 let's talk about the the, the national theatre. It's not just a very big, high-profile job. First of all, that you know, that I guess there's a lot of a lot of interest in the, you know the new artistic director. What's he going to bring? How's he going to handle it? But also, you're taking on a a national institution as well. I mean, it, it was did it feel like a very different type of job to the job you'd done before and if so in in what way what were the what were the new things that came with it
1: well the the new things that were most exciting to me were the 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 entire creative profile of the national theater the the repertoire the plays it was going to do the way they were going to be done the people who were going to do them the what they added up to over the course of a long period that I'd never done. I'd only been responsible for one thing at a time, a play or a movie. So, and that I think, the, 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 there's a reason why, why most theatres um, have an artistic director and an executive director or a chief executive or whatever. It, it, the, the, and although by name I was chief executive, essentially the organisation was run by my colleague Nick Starr, with whom I've continued to work on the current, the current project, the Bridge Theatre. And uh, I always preferred essential decisions, even repertoire decisions, to be bought into not just by executive director Nick Starr, but also by the group of associate directors I gathered around me. Um, and it would be relatively rare that I would unilaterally make a decision on, say repertoire, without making, without making sure that I wasn't crazy. I guess this also is a read across to any kind of business leadership. So the essential part of the job was: what are the plays going to be? Who's going to come see them? Who's going to be in them? And how are they going to get done? And since my previous experience had been about putting on individual plays, it's a it's a pretty good it's pretty it's pretty good grounding to come to artistic director direction from. It's not a hundred percent essential, but that's. It's, uh, so
0: it felt it felt different but familiar or, or, or familiar enough. Yeah, yes, yeah. and and
1: yeah, and I and I knew the National Theatre. I'd 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 been working I'd been working there on and off for a while. So and I had a really clear idea in two thousand and one, uh, uh, which is when I was appointed. I took over in two thousand and three, of of how it could be and why it might be different from what was going on which is well what that's I think well I'd love you to well time. that was
0: going to be my next question so that's a nice that's a nice segue so what 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 was that what was your vision for
1: it if you like well the the formula i used was that the two the two component parts of the name national and theater need need constant reexamination and it's why the leadership of an institution like that needs to change every decade or so because it felt that i had colleagues colleagues who had i had grown up in the theater with who were doing exciting things with the idea of theater that hadn't necessarily been seen or hadn't necessarily been established as part of the you know the grand mainstream that the national theater represents there was also an evolving country, an evolving city, an evolving, an, an evolving idea of who we were. So, and that is that is something which changes generation by generation. There was also an absolute conviction, this an instinct, which we later kind of provided evidence to support, that there was an audience available that was being locked out by ticket prices. And that was uh, that was uh, kind of one of the that was kind of one of the biggest deals I felt when I started. The National wasn't full because, as a result of a long period of funding shortfalls, t- ticket prices had risen beyond a place where a lot of the existing audience and a huge number of the potential audience couldn't come. So we dealt with that. We dealt with that, we formed a, 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 a partnership with the foreign exchange company, Travelex. Travelex enabled us to have a big 10 pound ticket program. They didn't fund it in its entirety, but they, they, they enabled us to take the risk with the proposition that if there were a lot more tickets, a lot cheaper, a lot more people would come. And in the end, your the ticket revenue wouldn't be that different from higher ticket prices and lower capacity. We arrived, Nick Star and I, at, at, a, at a very fortunate point, 2003, the second Labour government, the purse strings were being opened, funding rose. There was a period between 2003 and 2010 when funding was adequate, for, was, was, was adequate for all the things, not just in London, but also in the regions. There was a vast increase in funding of regional theatre. It meant that oh, audiences grew, the work became more adventurous, and everything looked pretty good. It has gone so sadly in a different direction. Well, I was
0: going to talk to you. I was going to ask you about that later on, but I mean, we let's you know, maybe let's talk about that now. I mean, I was going to ask you about the the debate about the ENO, the English National Opera. I mean, for those that I'll just explain, for those that don't know, the the, the government has said they're going to essentially cut the funding of the English National Opera unless it moves out of London. Yes, that is
1: that is right. So look, I now work in the commercial theatre. We so so recent funding decisions don't affect me or my theatre directly there has always been a symbiotic relationship between the commercial theatre and the uh, and the publicly funded theatre the two are totally reliant on each other both sectors are reliant on an education system i alluded to this earlier that allows allows secondary school students in particular to know what's going on and what they might get interested in and in some parts of the sector, it equips them for the the kind of understanding that you need, basic understanding of some of the more difficult forms of performing arts, which are also almost by definition some of the most rewarding forms of performing arts. Where we're at now is I think partly through negligence, partly through ignorance, and partly through uh, ideology. The education has been in the, secondary se- in, the, in the state sector essentially destroyed. So inevitably now, performing arts institutions themselves are looked to to provide what the education system isn't providing. That's a vast extra uh, burden, a vast extra expense, which all performing arts institutions gladly take on because we believe in it. There's less money available to make the art. Even before you start, because you're you're doing all this other stuff as well. Now funding itself is being reduced, not just a little bit, but quite dramatically. It's a real shame because during the pandemic, the government stepped up. The government hasn't been, the current government hasn't been a hundred percent neglectful of the art sector, but it's now being aggressively neglectful. In the name of leveling up, what has happened is that funding has been reduced in London to an extent that it will harm, or in some cases, destroy successful institutions, successful producers, to deliver minimal, truly minimal, uplifts in the rest of the country. It it's leveling down. It, it yes. is it is unambiguously leveling down. This we're dealing with less than 0.1 percent of the total public spending part. A good deal less than 0.1. A good deal less than one thousandth part of government spending goes to goes to the arts. It, it it's demonstrable that investment in the arts is effective not just in delivering excellent art, but At school level, effective in raising educational standards. The borough of Newham in South London, which has recently had to cut its music policy, providing for all primary school students the opportunity to learn an instrument, no longer, that program has been ended through lack of funding. Had hard data which showed that involvement in the performance of music resulted in a higher educational, higher, higher, better results in other areas of the, of education than just music. I mean, I could go on forever. What it boils down to is when I was at the National Theater, we had enough money. Now there isn't enough money. Less money means less product. Less product means less work flowing into the commercial sector means less revenue out at the other end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, somebody, well periodically people have asked me about because as somebody who worked in the in the creative industries in different parts of the creative industries but somebody who spent their career in in advertising you know i've always felt that i passionately agree with you you know that that unless kids for want of a better word are are coming in to the creative industries in the broadest sense the you know in in a very just if you look at it just from a a purely economic point of view which I and I know you know the debate goes beyond that but even if you just look at it from a purely economic point of view I think it's going to be detrimental towards to something that the country's good at so so I'm going to, I'm going to take us back to a slightly more positive place so so you have 12 I think hugely successful years of the national theatre and then you take what seems to me a and yet another very scary. It seems to me scary. You might tell me otherwise, Step, And you said about opening the bridge. As I said in the introduction, can you can you just talk to me about the sort of the vision and the ambition that you had and have? I guess for the bridge.
1: Well, the vision has been modified by COVID. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, so it, the vision. The vision was was pretty straightforward. The proposition was: it's possible to make commercial theatre outside of London's West End. It is therefore possible to work with developers. Outside of the West End, but in Central London, in Zone One, for whom a, a theatre, a large, a large theatre, a large performing arts space might be very beneficial, both in terms of planning, in terms of make making a project attractive to uh, in planning terms, but also in commercial terms, and that's that that was a proposition that was again, a hunch. It was based on a degree of dissatisfaction with. The experience of producers of plays in the commercial West End, where all creative risks are taken by producers who 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 deliver creative projects, finished shows, musicals, plays, whatever, to landlords who certainly, certainly prior to COVID, were operating in a seller's market. And you, if you're a producer of a play, you're you're in a position where you're taking basically all the risks doing all the work and providing most of your upside, delivering most of your upside to the landlord from whom you're renting a theater. Nick Starr and I thought that it might be a good idea to actually go back to the future, to go back to what was going on at the end of the 19th century where where theaters were built by producers who were putting stuff on the stage to to house their own stuff. The Savoy Theater, in the West End was built by doyle Cart to stage the Savoy operas by Gilbert and mm-hmm. Sullivan. It's still called the Savoy Theatre. So so we we found a development near Talbridge actually next door to Talbridge. yeah over, overlooking the Tower. Wonderful space. Overlooking the Tower of London mm-hmm. on the south bank of the Thames. So as well
0: as you sort of describing the, you know, the, the, the commercial underpinning of it or the commercial rationale, let me say, of it, did you also have a sort of, of course you had a creative vision, but did you have a way of, it has a distinct, if you like, commercial story. Let me, let me say that. Did you have a clear vision for, what it's, for it having a distinct creative story? Was there a bridge yeah. type of play, if you see what I mean?
1: yeah and I think even and I think that also has has changed hmm. because the creative story was you know listen i'm i'm I've done the national theater i can't pretend that i'm that I'm in touch as as I once was with the stuff that's bubbling up from the grassroots anymore. I thought and I still think that I'd found a way of of connecting a particular kind of play, a particular kind of show, musical, to a large audience in a way that satisfied me creatively, in a way that was that didn't need, that didn't compromise simply in order to achieve widespread popularity. I thought there was a way of commissioning playwrights and rethinking great work from the past for. A large audience, large enough for it not to need any degree of of philanthropy or public patronage. So it it was, yeah, the premise was that I've I've done enough along with the team that I work with across the entire spectrum from experimental minority interests, the kind of stuff you absolutely need to do to find the stuff that's popular tomorrow I've done enough I've done enough at that end, and I've also done enough at the super super popular end to be able to create a niche a create a niche for high quality work popular enough to be commercially attractive to a group of investors who were to be fair interested enthusiastic enough to take a punt on something that didn't look like it was a complete commercial slammed down. I think it's not just COVID, everything else that's happened over the last three or four years means that in the theater now, the stuff that worked 10 years ago, the stuff that I really feel confident about having to do and knowing how to do, isn't necessarily the thing that's currently required. And it's also a change in the temper of the times. So although there is still an audience and an enthusiastic, committed, delighted audience for the the reinvention of the kind of great play that used to just fly at the National Theatre, there's a committed audience for very good work, there isn't a mad rush at the box office for quite the same spectrum of work that there used to be. You, you you can still have a smash hit. You've always there's always room for a smash hit, and you can still put a big star in a play. Ray Fiennes we had earlier in the year sold out. Ray Fiennes is a huge movie star and also a great actor. No problem. But the work which which at the National I used to be completely one hundred percent confident about, very good work. It's now much more. It's much more precarious. So while we're waiting, and I think we are waiting. For the next new thing, what's going to replace that? What's going to be the? You mean the next ret- new
0: thing in terms of in terms of literally a play, or do you mean in terms of a, a style, a, a genre, a, a movement?
1: It's it, yeah, and I, it's not going to be one thing. No, but no, it's, it's, it's there's going the zeitgeist, to be. A, yeah, the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist will reform, mm. and the audience will re... I hope the audience will re-coalesce around that, and. And, and things will look rosy again. But, you know, we've been here before. I started in the theatre during the 80s when things were pretty ropey. Again, because, because, because of a much more competent government in the 80s. Much more competent. <laughs> it's not but, a high bar. It's not no, a high bar. I know. But it was ideologically. Ideologically, <laughs> it was simply opposed to the idea of public subsidy. So, so public subsidy shrank. Now we have this kind of lethal combination of incompetence, neglect, Malice and Brexit. Plus, Brexit has been a disaster for the performing arts. Center, a total disaster for the Be- because performing arts because of yeah. talent, because
0: of because of the ability to get because talented. of talent. Yeah. yeah,
1: because 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 of talent and um, freedom of movement was at the centre of work. both ways. People people going and working in other great cultural capitals, and people from other great cultural capitals coming to work here.
0: I remember sitting on a panel either immediately before or immediately after the, the vote, and. What struck me about this, the, the talent discussion, the, the freedom of movement t- around talent was that, that I, I always thought, you might correct me, but I always thought, you know, if the, if the London Symphony Orchestra needs a new conductor, you know, that, that, that person is going to get a visa wherever they're from in the world to come and conduct the, you know, the, the, the people who have already made it, let's say, are, are going to get, get the visas. But often... Um, when you're talking about uh, real creativity and creative reinvention, the energy that creativity brings, often that happens in the in the gap, as I see it, between somebody sleeping on somebody's sofa and them becoming that person who's made it. It's that thing they suddenly do, they suddenly arise from,
1: and it's those people that we're blocking from coming in. They're doing that leap somewhere else. Totally, and we're also robbing them, a lot of them, of a living. Mu- the music industry... Uh, and until until i mean this is why I say malice, Theresa May's deal actually carved out something for musicians, carved out kind of mutual recognition of for performing artists to be able to perform as they used to in the rest of Europe young bands whose whose living depends on being able to tour not just in this country but everywhere else too. Young opera singers, whose living depends on being able to fly over for a week and fill a gap or just take a job uh in madrid all that so it, so we're now in this ludicrous position where we are producing the talent, training the talent, and making it almost impossible for them to learn a living to earn a living it's 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 it's, it's like banging your head against a brick wall lots of people say it, but until until some kind of Pragmatic, pragmatic willingness to find solutions to these pretty easy problems to solve if only pragmatism would take hold again. We're, we're pretty screwed.
0: Well, I, I always think we We've talked about leadership as a podcast about leadership. I always think that that dogma exists in black and white, whereas I think leaders need to lead in color. You know, you you, you have to always, I mean, you were talking earlier about the way directors find a path to bring great talent together and, you know, incredibly diverse in all all meanings of the word, talent together to create some amazing alchemy that happens, sort of flares, and then they all go their own way again. There's something in that. And but to be able to do that, as you say, everybody's different. You you can't you know you you have to go in with yes clarity of objectives and all the things you're trying to achieve, but you can't go in with a dogmatic approach to how you're going to do it. And I think leadership is about seeing things in lots of different colours. And we need a bit of we need a bit of that. I I couldn't agree more. So I got I got two two last questions for you. The, the first is you know we've talked you know you've had this absolutely. Incredible career, and I'm sure much, much more still to come. When you look back from now at, the, at thus far, what are you most proud of? What's the, either the moment or the achievement that you're most proud of?
1: Well, I think, I think honestly, making the decision not not just to focus on my own stuff, one thing, one gig after the next, just getting myself together to believe that I could do something at the National Theatre with the National Theatre. It means that I can look back on numberless plays that I wouldn't have directed, wouldn't necessarily have happened unless I'd given them the nod, on careers that I got involved in at an early stage, not just at an early stage, on creative ambitions that I was able to Help enable for other people. This you don't get if you're just directing one movie after a next, one play after a next. So I think the thing I'm proudest of is all all the careers I managed. I'm I, I'm not gonna I I can't big it up too much. It's through through the position I held, but all the careers I was able to get involved in.
0: Well, you know, I, I I love that answer because I, you know, I often think, well, how, you know, because leadership's this thing everybody you know, talks about it, but it's it's also it, it can run through your fingers. It's like sand. It's very hard to 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 grab hold of and say, well, what did I actually do? Or what what does what actually does a great leader do? <laughs> and I and I always think a great a great question is to for any leader to ask themselves is, you know, am I good for the careers of the people that work for me? And and if the answer to that and 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 everybody has different sorts of careers, but but if, but if you can have just about answer yes, I think I am, then you're
1: doing an awful lot of things right. I think. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, if I think of of I, I just two two careers, two great artists at random, Marianne Elliott, great director, her her biggest success at the National when I was there was War Horse. James James Graham, great writer. They would they those are major artists who would have had great careers anyway, I'm not going to pretend that I made their careers. But when when James Graham, I went and saw a play that James Graham had written at the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush, asked him to come meet me at the National, and he pitched to me a play about the end of the Labour government in 1979, set in the Whip's office. And looking back on that, I said, you weren't even born then. What on earth? What not? And he pitched it so brilliantly that I think anybody in my position would have said, "Yeah, okay, go ahead, we'll commission that." And that became a play called This House, which then took us all by surprise. It was a huge popular hit. It started off in the smallest theatre, transferred to the biggest theatre, toured all over the country. It's. I, I'm not saying that that, that was it's all down, down to, to me. you. No, I'm, I'm just saying, God, it was great to be the guy who said yes. Well.
0: Look, Sir Nicholas Heitner, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thanks so much for for coming on
1: and thanks for your time. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Business. This episode was produced and edited by Isabella Soames. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future episodes should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to
1: podcasts at intelligencesquared.com.